Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing again today our series, Abraham, Father of All Who Believe. And we'll be turning in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 to 2, with a message entitled, The Slave Woman's Son. Let's join Dr. Newfeld now. Sometimes what seems like such a small thing to some is in fact a very large thing indeed. Such it is with a husband who has had an adulterous affair, and after being discovered, he tells his wife it meant nothing. But from her perspective, it meant so very much. What disturbs her as much as the adultery is his assessment that it meant nothing. For if the adultery was nothing to him, well, he's going to do it again, and the very basis for their marriage now stands in ruin. Indeed, what seems to him a small thing is an enormous, unscalable mountain. Or imagine an ancient sailor being one small degree off course, but given enough time and distance, that small thing, at least so it seems to him, is nothing short of a cataclysm. It's not a small thing at all. See, in our last broadcast, we began to discuss two small verses from the life of Abram. After many years of being unable to have children, Sarah, his wife, brings him the only solution that would even begin to make sense. Genesis 16, 1-2 reads, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Now in our culture, that seems wrong. What about adoption? Well, the answer is that's rather simple. Adoption didn't exist in that culture, not in the way that we know it today. But having sex with a household servant seems so wrong. Again, in that culture, when a wife failed to have children, especially among the wealthy, this was considered an acceptable practice. I've made the point that the New Testament teaches that what was especially wrong in this action is that Abram and Sarah tried to use human means to bring about the fulfillment of God's promises. Furthermore, I have made the argument that this thing that Abram and Sarah did is equivalent to us today trying to grow in our faith, overcoming temptation, becoming holy, without relying fully on the strength provided by the Holy Spirit. If we attempt to grow in our faith by the works of the law and by our own ability to keep God's law, we are attempting to accomplish that which God has promised us in our strength rather than in His. But some might argue, well, isn't that a small thing? After all, what's important is obedience, not in whose power we're doing it. But what might seem a small thing to us is an enormous problem to God. An illustration of this is the person who has daily Bible reading and prayer and by this assumes that he or she is now godly. Instead, we should do daily Bible reading and prayer so that we might grasp our need for God and the availability of his power. Now, as I've said, to some this is but a small difference, but indeed this thing that we might perceive to be but a small matter is all the difference between real growth into holiness and the complete destruction of our faith. One degree of difference makes all the difference in the world. And since this is what the book of Galatians teaches, especially when Paul discusses the problem with Abram's decision— We do well to take one broadcast and very carefully understand the point that is being made. Galatians 4, 21 to 26 says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, 
Do you not listen to what the law says? For it is written that Abram had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So, for Paul, Ishmael, the son born to Hagar, represents living according to the flesh, human effort, which corresponds to keeping the law or the Ten Commandments given at Mount Sinai. The son of the flesh, as Paul calls Ishmael, represents the best human efforts to keep God's word. Think about what happened in the covenant at Mount Sinai. Let's see if we can understand what it means. God came down on the mount when it trembled violently and fire was billing up from it like a mighty volcano. The people are terrified. And out of the smoke and the fire and the earthquake, God delivered up his Ten Commandments, his laws for holy living. This is how God intends for human beings to live, not just the people of God, all human beings. This is how God intends for all cultures to live. If we do these 10 things, it will go well with us. It was an awe-inspiring moment. It was an encounter with the living God. It was also a revelation of the baseline for moral living. To keep the 10 laws is a reflection of how God created us. It tells us what essential humanity looks like. It's the standard on which all morality rests. Exodus 24, verses 3 to 4, tells the initial response of the people of Israel to the Ten Laws. It says, When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. Well, that sounds good. God has spoken, and the people have committed themselves to be his holy people. We will obey, they say. It's a splendid moment in which the basis is set for Israel to be God's people, an example to the world, and the source of blessing for all who would seek after God. But we know that just a few chapters later, which represents only a very short time from receiving the laws, they were building an idol, golden calf, They were telling themselves that they need to go back to Egypt. They would break the first two commands. They would abandon Yahweh, who rescued them, and they would commit themselves to the calf idols of Egyptian slavery and accept the whip on their back. I wish this was the only time they failed, but it really isn't. Whether it was the waters of Meribah, or it was Kadesh Barnea, or the sexual immorality surrounding the ball of Peor, the track record of Israel is not just the occasional slip into disobedience, but a willful disregard of all Ten Commands as a pattern for life. No matter how hard they tried or the new commitments they were to make, they kept falling back to the same cyclical pattern of rebelling and failing and rebelling again. In fact, that's Paul's point in Galatians 4. It's the whole history of Israel from Moses onward up until this time. It is the history of Jerusalem, and it represents the best attempt that human beings can do to keep God's command. The story is of a miserable failure. But human ingenuity knows no bounds. And so in the course of time, the the history of Israel was to produce a group of religious teachers called the Pharisees. Their promise was that they would teach Israel how to be faithful to God's law and not be like their forefathers. 
And so the Pharisees constructed what was called a hedge around the law, teaching rule upon rule to keep Israel from breaking the Ten Essential Commandments. And in the process, they so twisted the law of God that it was actually possible to convince oneself that one had kept the law of God and that God was obligated to bless them. They'd earned his blessing through their own efforts, and they kept quoting Leviticus 18, verse 5. The man who does these things will live, and this is the kicker. It was all slavery. It was bondage. It was constantly working to try to be good enough for God and never quite sure whether you were there. Do you know how many Christians live that way today? They go through their entire lives having a sense that they're not really good Christians after all. They, they need to work harder at their faith. They, they feel guilty. They, they feel second rate. They're, they're never good enough. They're, they're discouraged, and they've stopped growing spiritually. And in response, they sometimes redouble their efforts to be more faithful. And once in a while, I'll hear Christians admitting that they're not good Christians at all, but they're working on it. But what they don't even show the slightest ability to comprehend is that they're not living by faith. I mean, what slavery, what bondage. You know, if that's you, you're, you're a son of Hagar, you're a son of the flesh. But here, someone who is paying attention and trying to be biblical might say, well, but didn't God give the law? Didn't he descend on Mount Sinai? And these weren't suggestions. He demands that we keep them. Well, true enough. But herein is all the difference between being on course and being just a few degrees off. Yeah, it's true that you can't play fast and easy with God's commands. You're not free to lust after your neighbor's wife or to steal from your employer or to express anger and attempt to destroy your enemy. You can't harbor a secret love of idolatry in your heart or misuse the sacred name of your God. God will not tolerate such rebellion and he will demand an accounting of you. So what's to be done? If I can't keep the law in my own strength, and indeed, if all attempts to keep the law only magnifies my condemnation and imprisons my soul even further, what is to be done? And the answer to that is not a small thing. What is needed is to know why God gave the law and on what basis we can keep it. The definition of legacy, something that is passed on. But legacy can mean so much more, your faith, core values, your character, or the life you lead. Maybe this is news to you, but Back to the Bible Canada partners with Advisors with Purpose to provide expert estate planning at no cost. This is a third-party service, so Back to the Bible Canada is not involved in the planning or how you would steward your legacy. We simply hope to provide access to an opportunity to ensure you leave a legacy that will accurately represent your wishes for future generations and faithful stewardship of all God has entrusted to you. So if you're interested or would like more information, call Advisors with Purpose directly at 1-866-336-3315 and let them know you're a friend of Back to the Bible Canada or visit backtothebible.ca slash legacy. Galatians 3.19 says, Why then the law? It was added because of trespasses until the offspring should come to whom the promise was made. 
Now, just as an explanation, the offspring refers to Jesus, who comes from the line of Isaac and not from Ishmael. But let's not be distracted. There are, according to Galatians, three reasons why God gave the law. First, he gave the law to highlight sin. The law actually works the way a highlighter works when you're marking up a book. Let me explain that. Suppose with me that you're feeling like you're a loser. I mean, you watch as people at work or in school do better than you do. I mean, some people have nicer cars and others have prettier or more handsome spouses and people are just getting ahead more than you are and you're deeply discouraged about the whole thing. I mean, you feel like a failure and you have this dis-ease in your own soul. I mean, why can't you make it the way that others do? So what's going on? Well, the law will help you underline or explain to you exactly what's going on. The Tenth Commandment says, you shall not covet. And suddenly a vague feeling becomes crystal clear. You're sinning. It's a sin of being a coveter. Just like a highlighter, the law makes that line or that paragraph in your life suddenly leap out and become crystal clear. Yes, that's that's what the law does. It examines and clarifies what's going on inside of us. So why did God give the law? Well, first of all, to highlight sin. Secondly, God gave the law without the power to transform the heart. Galatians 3 verse 21 says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life then righteousness would indeed be through the law. Now, here's the second point. The law can't impart life. Just knowing what God wants doesn't give you the power to do it. And hear me, trying hard never gets you what God wants. That's why you have people who confess when they're caught in a sin and they keep on doing it. It enslaves them. They're, they're perfectly miserable in all of this, but they keep repeating it often to their own disgust. I mean, the law might highlight my sin, but it can't transform me. So the law highlights sin, and it shows my powerlessness that I'm a hopeless lawbreaker. Now, here's the third reason for the law. The law is a schoolmaster leading us to Christ. Listen to how Paul describes that in Galatians 3, to 24. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promises by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, in other words, this understanding of what God wants And this understanding of what we're incapable of should lead us to believe that the solution for our dilemma must be found somewhere other than trying hard. The solution ought to be found somewhere else, and that somewhere else should lead us to throw ourselves on the mercy of God and surrender to the grace that comes in Christ. So let's get back to Abram and Sarah. They know what God wants. He's made it clear. But what should they do? I've tried to show that their question is our question as well. God has shown us much more clearly what he wants in our lives than he showed Abram. He wants us to know him and to love him. He wants us to be holy. He he wants us to be effective servants of his, bringing light to a darkened world. But how do we accomplish that, and how do we do that? We need to understand that obeying God is entirely a matter of faith and not of works. That's the insight that we need. But what does that mean? 
Does it mean that, like Abram, we should simply wait for God to bring about an heir through Sarah? Does it mean that we simply wait for God to make us obedient and not concern ourselves with a matter? I mean, is this not the doctrine of being laissez-faire? Let God change me. I mean, that's his business, nothing for me to do. Well, not really. What is needed is not great effort, but great faith. I have said it before, but the great challenge in life is to believe God. For instance, consider Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. See, it requires great faith to believe that, especially when it seems that anything but holiness and blamelessness is, is going on in my life up till now. We need to believe. So what's obedience that comes from faith? Well, first, it's a confidence in God's promises and his word that results in freedom. Listen, to have obedience in faith is to say, I believe Philippians 1.6, where Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I believe that God will do what he's promised. I may be crushed today by my overwhelming sense of sinfulness, but I'm determined to live in holiness, and I am persuaded that God will keep his word, completing my sanctification. And so whenever I find a command of God, I should also search the scripture for a promise that relates to that specific command. I should see my task is to believe the promise. So as an example, here's the command in scripture. In Matthew 6:25, Jesus commanded us not to be anxious about anything in life. Now, I know, I know, that command will make some of you anxious just by hearing it. But in that very command, Jesus also includes a promise. As God cares for everything else, how much more will he not care for you, O you of little faith? So our task is to believe that God will use his power to care for us. All we need to do is believe that with all of our hearts. Furthermore, consider the promise of Hebrews 7.25 when it says, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he, Christ, always lives to intercede for them. I believe that Jesus is himself interceding with the Father on my behalf right now. I believe that Jesus is committed to my cause. He loves me, and I will finish the race in victory because he is committed to me, I believe. Indeed, I will continue to read the scripture until my soul grasps that and believes it wholly, and that gives me freedom. So please don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that I'm not involved in this process. My faith informs my actions. If I believe, I act in accordance with my belief. For instance, if I believe that the Word of God is powerful and that it sanctifies, well, I'm going to read it. If I believe that there's power in Christian fellowship, well, I'm going to be in fellowship. And if I sin, I know that at some level there's been a belief problem in me, But that confession of sin puts me back on the faith path. But faith is always the place where it starts. And faith is a confidence that brings us freedom. It's not based upon rules and do's and don'ts. It's an assurance that God is at work in me for my benefit. Secondly, obedience through faith contains a certainty in the fullness of God's blessing. In Galatians 4.27, Paul says that the children of the desolate one— will be more than the one who has a husband. See, that's a quote taken from Isaiah 54, verse 1. And that's significant because this quote follows Isaiah 53, 
which, as many of you are aware, is the passage that predicts the suffering of the Messiah for the sins of the world. I mean, after telling of the plan that God has enacted for our salvation, the passage breaks out into song. Be glad, O barren woman. You know, it's hard not to think about Sarah here. Be glad, Sarah, you barren woman. You have many children. Indeed, each one of us needs to say the same. I, the barren servant of Jesus, will break out into fruitfulness through the power of God and because of the promise that God has made for me and to me. Oh, be glad. Finally, obeying in faith is a reliance on the Spirit of God. In Galatians 4, verse 29 to 30, Paul gives a command to believers. Cast out, he says, the slave woman's son. Throw away confidence in your ability and each day command your soul to believe in God's ability. Cast out the slave woman's son. There is in the heart of every believer and every born-again child of God a war within himself or herself. It's the war against the flesh and the spirit. The flesh operates on the principles of lust and revenge and hatred and gossip and fits of rage and impurity. And then, as if shocked by what it finds in itself, it recoils in horror and determines to make improvements. And that's slavery. But in response to this slavery, there is this marvelous freedom that gets given to all of us. And it's the freedom that says that through the Holy Spirit, I can put to death the misdeeds of the body. See, each day you might pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And each day you might pray, give me the power to believe you when you have spoken so that I might be the man or the woman of holiness that you have promised that I will be for all of eternity. May your spirit be always at work in me. John, uh, there's something you had mentioned earlier to me, but you didn't on the broadcast, but I'd like you to refer to it again. It's it's a Dr. Walter Martin, and he talks about the war within. Yeah, Dr. Martin was my prof, and I remember one student asking him once, Dr. Martin, when will we ever be done with the war against sin? And I remember his response. He said, about several hours after you're dead, I never trust warm flesh. And I, I remember groaning and thinking, oh, the struggle of it all. But, you know, that's not where it ends. I mean, here's the promise. If you allow the Spirit of God to lead you, you're going to be victorious. And that simply means if you're a born-again believer, God's Spirit is living inside of us. And he's speaking to us and convicting us, us of sin. And he's encouraging us to love Christ. He's giving us an overwhelming sense of love for Christ. And he's reminding us always to go back, listen to the promises of God, believe in those promises, apply them to our own hearts, and live as if those promises are true. I mean, that's the struggle, but that's also the wonderful freedom that we've been given as well. He's a faithful God. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John, spiritual encouragement of Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. 
So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca, call us at 1-800-663-2425, and please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants.